it's something that anyone has to directly sort of address towards you for you to notice how people th- talk about dark-skinned people versus light-skinned people and who's on television who's in the movies and who's considered beautiful and who's considered smart and and all of those things i think you pick up on when you're a kid hello friends welcome to the open book podcast series where we bring you fascinating and important conversations between local and international authors. I'm Fasti Karlitz, and I will be listening to these conversations with you. In this episode, Sarah Jane King talks to Britt Bennett. Britt is a 30-year-old writer from Southern California, whose most recent book is The Vanishing Half. This is a story about identical twin sisters who run away from their hometown, which is a town of light-skinned black people, where each generation is lighter skinned than the one before. One of the twins, Desiree, returns years later with a dark-skinned daughter, and the other, Stella, lives her life passing as a white woman. It's a multi-generational narrative about identity and family and such a good read. This book is already a New York Times bestseller. Brit is in conversation with Sarah Jane King, who is an author and broadcaster. You might know her from her show on Cape Talk, or from her book, Killing Caroline. This is a really interesting discussion of racial politics and how it's different in the American versus South African contexts, as well as all the exciting places this book is going. I hope you enjoy it. Here's their conversation. Britt, welcome uh, to what would have been, of course, uh, your first open book festival with us, but due to COVID, uh, we are having to do this instead. It's a real pleasure to have you join us uh, to talk about uh, your second novel, The Vanishing Half, which is just doing extraordinary things, and congratulations uh, on that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So... I want to start literally at the very beginning. While the while the main protagonists, of course, are Stella and Desiree, the first character really that we meet is the town of Mallard. And I gather that the idea uh, for this town came from a story that your mom had told you. Yeah, she. my mom's from uh, rural Louisiana, and she told me on the phone a story about a town she remembered hearing about as a child where everyone just intermarried so that their kids would get lighter. Um, so it always struck me as a very strange place and a very strange, uh, a strange town that I could really not imagine. It felt very mythological to me. And I decided that I wanted to write about a place like that in this book. It's yeah. And you, and you say mythological and, and the whole feeling of the book in a sense has a feeling of, uh, the, of, of mythology around it. It's like one of those things that you would maybe once, you know, you would hear somebody saying, well, once upon a time, there were these two, these two girls. And it's, it's, you could imagine it, it becomes the stuff of legend that the story of, of these twins, um, the the twin motif and the duplicity motif kind of works its way um, throughout the book. Did you always know that, that Stella and Desiree would be twins? Yeah, I knew that they would be twins. I knew that I wanted to start this town. And then the next thought I had was about twins who came from this town and who decided to live their lives in very different directions. Um, I thought that there was something inherently kind of fun and interesting about writing about identity in a way that that uses twins um, who are so often invoked when we think about questions of nature versus nurture and and questions of personality and and how we all become the people that we become, aside from any genetics or aside from how you're raised, what is it about us intrinsically that makes us who we are? The book, of course, explores uh, colorism. And I wondered from, from your point of view as a black woman, when did you first become aware of colorism and have there been incidents in your life where that has specifically been an issue for for you? Um, I don't remember when I became aware of it, but 
I, I think that it's something that is you just notice around you. So something that I always remember being sort of always aware of. And in this book, I wanted to think about, about colorism as something that is lived and experienced and something that's not just abstract or it's not just an ideology or an idea, although it's also that. I wanted to think about how these characters are actually experiencing colorism in their day-to-day lives and in their real lives um, and the ways in which they, they carry that with them once they leave this town. The conversation around race and, and, and racism is very often, because of the nature of what it is, it's framed in almost a them and us, a black and white. And then when we start to investigate colorism, it becomes more difficult because often it's us as black people perpetuating it against ourselves. Um, And I just wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk about colorism in a way that didn't pathologize black people because I think sometimes that's where the conversation goes. Um, For me, I wanted to make it very clear that colorism is a result of white supremacy. It's not something that just emerges from nowhere. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to trace it back to its roots and, and think about that question that you're speaking to. What does it mean to to sort of perpetuate this amongst ourselves and against ourselves in a lot of ways. Um, I think that there is something thorny about that topic, but, um, but I think that it is a really, uh, it's, a, it's a complicated thing to, to think about sort of writing into and writing towards, because I think colorism invokes a lot of feelings of shame, and I think that shame is very hard to write about. So I wanted to think about this character, Jude, who arrives in the book on the first page, uh, who's a dark-skinned child who arrives in this town, Mallard, and is forced to grow up there with her mother um, and experiences so much violence uh, because of her skin color. And not just that experience, but also how she carries that with her once she has left this place. That feeling of shame and violence that she experiences is something that she cannot, or she struggles to shake even after she's left the borders of this town. The, again, an, another theme in the novel is is that of of violence and the violence that is perpetuated against uh, against Jude for the for the color of her skin. That later violence um, with Reese, but but also with with the girls at the start of the novel or at the start of their lives, really, uh, and the violence uh, with their father. Did you always know that the book would be that they, it would have these elements of it, and and also that they there wouldn't be a father figure for the two. Uh, yeah, I think I knew that their father was going to be gone in some way. I don't know if I knew exactly how he would be absent or the manner in which that happens, which is a really um, visceral sort of moment that these twins witness. Yeah. But, but I think I always knew it was going to be them and their mother um, in some capacity. And and yeah, I mean, I, 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 I knew that there were going to be these moments of loss and these moments of, of violence that that these characters experience and witness um, that shape them and kind of ripple throughout their lives and also the lives of their children. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can just put in context a little bit for us. We, we of course, in South Africa have have our own understanding around around colorism and particularly, I mean, it was, you know, under apartheid, uh, we had the racial classification system and, and many, many families were divided um, when it came to that system because some families or some people would seek to be reclassified as white because obviously that was more beneficial. But I wonder if you could just explain a little bit about the history of passing in in an American context. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of different types of passing in America from people changing their names when they came into Ellis Island to hide that they 
were from somewhere else, or something like this book where Stella decides to live as a white woman. Um, so I think there are lots of, of forms of passing of people assuming different identities. And while it's not something that's obviously uh, only an American practice, I think there is something very deeply American about it uh, because of this belief that you can reinvent yourself uh, and this sort of deep kind of individualistic belief that we have in, and yeah, the, the sort of liberation of reinventing yourself and, and creating yourself in this way that I think runs very deeply through our culture. So yeah, I wanted to, to kind of write into that. The history and the literature of passing and, and think about it from my perspective as a 21st century writer uh, and to kind of raise the questions of what does passing look like if we assume that these categories are already fluid and they're unstable and that they're unclear. Uh, what does passing even mean if that's our standpoint? Often, um, and particularly in the context of, of, of black consciousness, we, we are asked and, and we ask of ourselves what black identity is and what it means to be black. And I wonder, like in the case of Stella, it's a question of whiteness and what it means to be white. And so I wonder what were your own thoughts and, and any realizations perhaps that you had while writing Stella about what it means to be white? <laughs> I mean, I think that's a really big question, and I, I don't know. I think for for Stella, the moment that I think she truly feels like she has finally become white is the moment in which she leverages the power of whiteness against a black character um, in the book. And that's the moment where I think she feels, up until that point, she kind of feels like she's a fraud. And after she sort of leverages that power in that way, I think that's that's the moment that for her is where that, that door has kind of slammed shut behind her. And she's fully entered this new life. Um, so I think there is a lot about power um, that, that, that Stella discovers as she is on this journey of, of what it means. There is a type of power that she is afforded and her awareness that she can use that power and her willingness to use that power. That's the moment I think that she feels that she's finally kind of stepped into her whiteness. Mm, mm. In, in getting to, to know Stella, and I, I had moments where I wanted to you know be quite violent with her and the and moments where I just pitied her um and in getting to know her and then doing some reading around you and, and other things that you've written I I read the piece um that you wrote about good white people and immediately I thought of Stella and thought she would position herself in in that very in that way as a as a good white person um, given her her sort of performative whiteness and and you know a lot of the time she's probably sort of patting herself on the back uh, for her treatment particularly of of Loretta letting their kids play together um, and I, I wonder if if uh, looking back now Stella is somebody that you might have in mind when it comes to good white people you know it's hard because I think I mean I think at the point in which you meet Stella she's very much not being a good white person at all I think her husband is maybe more of a good white person than she is. Um, I think that she is almost being performatively a bad white person <laughs> because she doesn't want um, to be discovered that she's passing. So she's sort of being, to her husband, in his perspective even, she's like embarrassingly sort of uh, over the top with her aversion to black people, which he finds to be kind of just tacky. Um, so I think that her husband is the one that I kind of wanted to write towards of, of being this sort of white moderate who, um, you know, would very much not consider himself racist, but 
like would probably vote for Trump because he wants lower taxes. But then he would say that he's not a racist and that he won't, you know, like he's like that type of person, I think. Um, so he wouldn't be like at a rally. He wouldn't be. Yeah, he's not screaming the N word, but he doesn't want people to move into his neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's not going to do that. He's not going to burn a cross, you know, yeah. but but would he sign a petition to stop? So, yeah, he would do something like that. So I think that her husband is a lot more invested in his goodness and the parents of his goodness as this kind of wealthy, moderate uh, white man. And for me, a lot of that was just Stella. Uh, you know, Stella has to learn how to perform whiteness and she has to learn how to perform it in a way that she has never experienced it as a black person. She's never experienced white people like Blake. You know, she doesn't know that his sort of, you know, East Coast uh, comes from money type of whiteness she knows, you know, these kind of good old boys. That's what she knows. So that's the ways in which she is kind of reforming the whiteness, but that's not appropriate when you're in Brentwood. That's mm. not appropriate in LA. There's a way in his mom just thinks that she's she's trash. She's she's sort of this white trash is what his mom calls her. Um, because the way that she is performing whiteness is the way that she experienced it in rural Louisiana, which is not appropriate for when you're in a wealthy LA suburb. So to me, there was always something fun about thinking about uh, the ways in which those those roles that we perform are so relative and they change and what's appropriate in one place is not appropriate in another place. And Stella's always a couple steps behind trying to learn and trying to catch up. Yeah, yeah. As I said, the, the title speaks to speaks to so many of the characters um, in the book and, and this idea of duplicity. Um, of course, there's there's obviously Stella, Reese also, and, and the experiences that he's going through in, in his life. But also Early, who I have to say, I absolutely adored as a character. I just, there was something very, and I hope you'll take this the right way, there was something very Zora Neale Hurston about the way that you that you wrote early. Um, and I and I just absolutely adored him. And I felt like his he just he he bought something to Desiree. He bought something out in her character that just made her softer. Was that intentional that he was the as hard as he seemed at times, he bought something soft to her. Yeah. I mean I think it was something I discovered over time. Um because there was originally I think a lot more drama in that relationship. And then the more I spent time with those characters, I became actually way more interested in them as kind of these just sort of compatible life partners mm-hmm. that are kind of living in their separate way, but together. And there was something really cool about that of thinking about this relationship that's not bound by law and it's not bound by any type of marriage vow, but these are two people who love and trust and respect each other and care for each other. And particularly Desiree, who's somebody that we meet as she's, uh, exiting this really violent and horrible marriage for her to find love in somebody who kind of like kind of leaves her alone but also always comes back (laughs) there was something about that that i just found like thinking about how love can manifest in a way that's not about possessing and not about being possessed um to me there was something really cool about writing towards this relationship like that and seeing that relationship as it develops and as these people enter middle age together um, from the teenagers that they were when they first met. Mm, mm. Do you ever become frustrated with your characters? Because I did. I became <laughs> frustrated with them, um, but but also d- developed an enormous fondness for them. Um, but d- do you become frustrated with them? Uh, I don't 
don't know. It's hard to say that because I know that everything they're doing, I'm choosing, you know? <laughs> like there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that, like, I, I, if I'm frustrated with them, I'm frustrated with myself. So I don't know about that. But, I, I mean, I think the, the sort of fun um, part of fiction is, is getting these characters and finding how they're going to get them, themselves into these sticky situations or how they're going to find themselves in these, in these, uh, into these problems because I think that's where you really discover who people are when, when the rubber meets the road and when they're kind of in these tough situations. So there are a lot of points when I think particularly Stella makes lots of choices that I would, could never see myself making. Um, but that's when she becomes most interesting to me is when she's doing things that are often unlikable and, and that are often frustrating. The the novel, of course, um, moves through through time. Um, can you talk about some of the the sort of the technicalities of or the challenges of writing in that way? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was very challenging. Um, it took a long time for me to try to figure out the timeline and how it was going to move through time. I knew that it wasn't chronological. I knew that the stories felt like they existed in almost different times because the family was so fractured. Um, and these people were living lives that were completely apart from each other. So it didn't feel right that they lived in the same timeline even. Um, so it was really challenging to figure out how to move through time in this way that was not chronological, but also would not completely confuse anyone reading it. Um, but eventually, with a lot of work and revision and a lot of great notes from my editor, um, we, I think, eventually figured out the best way that, that, that the story could be told um, in its own sort of timeline, not, not bound by any type of strict chronology. Are you a writer who ever gives any credence to that, to the, the audience voice or the potential audience's voice? Or do you write for you and you elect? Uh, I mean, I'm aware. I think I'm, I'm aware of, of how certain things might be read. Um, I try to be. But at the same time, yeah, I don't think you can write anticipating what people are, how people are going to react to something because there's no way that you know. And, and also I think then you're writing, you're almost like, have like a focus group in your head as you're writing. And that just seems, uh, that seems not fun. And also really frustrating to try to please people uh, that you don't know. So to me, I'm always just writing, I think toward, toward my community and, and thinking about how my community would, would react to something that I'm writing, but wanting to write the book that, that to me will feel challenging and exciting and interesting. Do you want the book to challenge this is quite a. Do you want the book to challenge good white people? Because there will be, there will be, and although although she's not white, she's performing as if she is. There will be people who live in Brentwood in and who have who, who hold the same sensibilities as as Stella does, and they'll read your book. So, is, do you? Do you think, oh, well, I hope they they see themselves in that? Do you not care either way? Um, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't write, uh, I don't write with white people in mind, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and, um, but I do think that, um, I, I do think that uh, as far as thinking about, about this community, I, I wanted that. I think that sometimes the ways in which we, we represent racist people is that they are so sort of cartoonishly racist they are um you know they're nazis or they are the good old boys burning crosses and and that's what people read as a racist and not the guy who lives in the suburban neighborhood and is signing a petition so that a black family can't move in or something like that um so i I do think that i i thought about what type of community stella would enter and i had a lot of different thoughts of 
Is she going to end up in like suburban Dallas? Is she going to end up in New York? Is she going to end up in California and, and all of the different sort of communities that she might join and the politics of those communities? What if she marries a politician? What if she marries, you know, and I thought about all of the different sort of dynamics of what could put a lot of pressure on her. And ultimately, I felt that it might have put more pressure on her if she had married sort of this good old boy. And that's maybe something that you expect. But to me, it was more interesting to think of she marries the, the moderate white Republican uh, who wants lower taxes and says that he's not racist. <laughs> to me, that was actually a lot more interesting to think of how she was situated then. And I also did like that it I think that it uh, it puts it puts pressure maybe on a white reader um, in a way that seeing this character who's burning across, it's easy to be like, well, that's not me. That's not anybody I know. Um, so I, I think that there is something about that that puts that puts pressure. Um, but again, my, my imagined reader is never is never a white person. It's always me thinking about writing towards my own community and, and writing uh, towards black women in particular. The reason that I asked that is that I, when I when I wrote my book and and I, there's a specific passage in the book which which speaks to a very specific type of white woman and and the way they behave in South Africa towards car guards, which is people that we have here who could kind of look after your car, and it was a very specific passage and and I. I wondered how it was going to be received because I knew that the people who ultimately bought the book were going to be that very, those very people. And I wondered if they would be able to put eyes on themselves and, and recognize in the same way that I've often wondered if you, if you are an abuser of, if you are a man who abuses a woman and, and something comes on TV that's showing a domestic violence situation, do you see yourself in that or do you completely fail, fail to see that? Yeah. It's always fascinated me. I don't think people see themselves in that, you know? And I think that that's another reason why I try not to write towards it because yeah. that reader that you are writing towards in that way that you think they're never going to see that character and see themselves, you know? So I think that's why to me, I had a conversation in grad school with a professor who's Sri Lankan American. And at one point she was just like, who do you imagine your reader to be? And I just said, well, it's black women. It's, and, and I looked around my workshop and there were 12 of us in the room and there was one other black woman and me and everybody else was, you know, belonged to some other group. And um, I loved my workshop and I got great feedback from everybody. But it was a really liberating moment when I realized that the people who make up this room are not the people that I imagine to be reading me and not the people that I'm writing for. Um, and it's great if they love my book, but this is not who I'm out here trying to please or who I'm out here trying to even necessarily speak to. So it was liberating to know that and to think that I don't have to explain or define myself. I don't have to translate myself. Um, if this is not the community that I'm writing towards, the community that I'm writing towards, I don't have to translate myself towards because they understand what I'm coming from and what I'm interested in and what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There have been comparisons um to your writing um, or of your writing to the likes of James Baldwin and Toni Morrison. Um, I've just kind of thrown Zora Neale Hurston into the works, but <laughs> I, I wonder what your views are around that comparison of black writers to black writers and whether it's something that you embrace or whether you just find it um, reductive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a great honor um, to be compared to those writers. Just three writers that I really love and three writers that I, I draw upon as a as I'm writing, um, you know, I think sometimes it is reductive uh, to sort of compare across or sort of limit the ways in which we see art as only 
sort of being bound by the identities of the writers. Um, so I, I do see that reductive as sometimes and, uh, and, you know, sometimes a little lazy, I think. Like, there's a way in which I think sometimes Toni Morrison becomes, like, the black writer that everybody knows. Um, and rightfully so. She's brilliant and I think the greatest American novelist to ever live. Um, but also at the same time, I think there is kind of a knee-jerk reaction, uh, particularly black women writers, to, to, to sweep us up with Toni Morrison, which, again, like I said, is is an honor and a compliment, but also there was only one Toni Morrison. There only will ever be one Toni Morrison. Um, so I, I, I think it's an honor, but also I hope that we will cultivate a sort of more expansive way of thinking about art beyond the identity of the writer. Yeah, for sure. In terms of where, what you want readers to take away from, from the book, I mean, you said that you, you write, I love that you said you write to ask questions, not to give answers. And I, I love that. Do you, do you want people to read because it's a because it in order to continue a conversation to spark a conversation to think about their own questions and answers um presumably you're not writing in order that somebody draws a conclusion or or has an answer to a problem yeah i mean i i when i think about why i write i think about why i read and you know i read because i want a good story i want to experience something i want to feel something um, I want to think about something more deeply or differently. Um, I want to experience these emotional connections to characters who are not real and who I will never meet and who do not actually exist in our tangible world. I think that's the beauty of reading. So that's the same experience that I hope to leave readers with when I'm writing. Uh, I want people to, I, I, you know, I think that there's so many things that people can be doing to, to uh, occupy their time and working and taking care of kids and spending time with family or watching movies or TV or playing video games or anything that people could be doing. So to sit and spend time with a book that requires so much of your attention and concentration, <laughs> that's something that I don't take lightly. Um, and I hope that to leave people with a good reading experience and having felt um, moved and having felt that you experienced something that, that you hadn't before. Who are some of the characters in literature that you have had the, the biggest affinity with? Uh, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough question. I mean, I think about some of the books that uh, really affected me. I think about something like The Color Purple, which to me is a Bible. Um, I, I think that that's a book that has lived on in so many mediums and so many forms, and, and rightfully so, because of the strength of that story at the heart of that book, that it can be moving as a film and as a musical and as a you know a picture book probably it can be moving in all of these different forms uh, because there's so much at the heart of it about about sisterhood and love and and, and strength and survival um, within the very specific context in which that book is set. Um, so I think somebody like Celie is a character that you never forget. Um, I think as far as Hurston, I mean, their eyes were watching God. When I thought about writing this book, I knew that I wanted to start with this this woman returning to this town mysteriously, um, which is, you know, of course, the way that their eyes were watching God begins and, and lots of really iconic sort of books, particularly within a black canon, begin of a woman kind of returning mysteriously and nobody knowing where she came from. Uh, so I, I love that idea of kind of writing into that tradition in a way, but I think about that book and the characters who inhabit that book. Um, that's a book that I think of being about sorrow, but also really about joy in a lot of ways. So that's another book that I that has meant a lot to me. 
Um, there are a lot of these books that just kind of live inside you once you've read them. Mm. Uh, I know that you are working on something something else at the moment, but a- ahead of that, um, the rights to The Vanishing Half have been optioned by HBO. How do you feel? I mean, it, obviously it's fantastic and it's exciting, but is there, I mean, I suppose, how much control will you have over what we eventually will see on the screen? Um, and do you feel possessive over your, uh, maybe possessive is not the right word, protective of of your characters yeah when they go into a different medium yeah so I, I will be an executive producer so i'm not writing uh but i will be consulting and weighing in on on the story and, and helping the writers in that way um i think possessive no but protective yes um they're uh you know there's there's a feeling that you have towards the characters um, where you don't want them, you don't want the, the adaptation to lose what people love about the book. Um, so there's certain things that I would really fight for to keep in the show. <laughs> um, but, but at the same time, I think what excited me about not writing, um, was the idea of handing the book off to somebody else and allowing the book to be translated through somebody else's eyes, through someone else's creative vision. And I think that's what's exciting about TV in particular. It's such a collaborative medium. It's very different than the experience of writing a novel by yourself in a room. Um, there are so many people that will be involved in making this show. And I am really excited to see this book go from something that was such a solitary project to something that is community, that's yeah, a community sort of project and that's a collaborative project. Um, so I, I'm protective of it, but I'm, I'm happy that we have great people coming on board and that I, I, I know that the, the folks at HBO um, are also uh, protective over the book and um, you know, have been great in, in how we've all talked about seeing this book in the same way. I was speaking to uh, one of our best-selling authors, Lauren Bierkes, who who's also done extraordinary things in the States, and she was speaking about the loneliness of writing and that, this, you know, there's a part... What we see as the reader is is the beautiful jacket of the book and, and you know, the, the book sales, if, if you're a follower of, of literature... Um, but she was talking about the loneliness of writing, and I wonder whether that's something that you also experience. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't. It's hard for me. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty introverted and 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 happy generally to be by myself. So it's not something that I consider particularly lonely. I do miss the sort of grad school experience of being in a workshop uh, where you had people who were reading what you were working on and giving you that live feedback that now I don't have anymore. I have agents and editors who I reach out to when I'm ready, but for most of the project, like thing I'm working on now, no one has, I guess my agent has read it, but really no one beside her has read it for two years. I've just been working on it. So, so there is something I think about that solitude, but I also just, I do love that. Like I haven't shown it to my editor yet. Cause I love that space before somebody sort of enters that room with you. There, I know that once I, once I welcome her into that room, that dynamic is going to really change between me and the book, which now is just, I can do whatever I want. No one has seen it. Nobody really cares. So, you know, I think that there can be something very freeing about that solitude in a way versus having people over your shoulder and, and looking to see what you're doing. But at the same time, I also still love talking to friends about what I'm, what I'm working on and, and getting feedback in that limited capacity that I, I find really helpful once I'm a little bit further into a project. Are you someone that reads reviews of your of your books? I try not to. I'll, I'll read usually the big ones. Like if you get a New York Times review, you kind of have to read that, you know? <laughs> like you can't really not. But I try not to. I just, I try not to get too high. I try not to get too low just in 
in life. Um, and I feel that same way about feedback. You know, I think it, it's great to hear people say nice things about you. It makes you feel bad if people say bad things about you. I just try to kind of avoid all of it <laughs> because I, I, I just want to, again, I want to be writing towards what I want to be writing towards, not with critics imagined or real in the back of my head. Yeah, imagined or real. There's the key to it. Yeah. Uh, listen, I absolutely adored The Vanishing Half. I We were speaking about it earlier uh, and uh, it, it just is the most incredible, authentic book. Um, and I, it, I wish you all the very best with it. I mean, it's only been out for, what, a few months now and it's already just doing amazing things. Uh, and of course, we look forward to uh, your next project whenever and wherever that may arrive. Um, for now, though, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully, uh, in, a, in another time when things are back to normal, we will welcome you uh, to our shores and you can meet some of your readers. I can't wait. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, as well as Sarah Jane's book, Killing Caroline, are available at the Book Lounge. The next episode will bring you Mia Ardern and Pumlani Piccoli in conversation with Kelly Smith. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, the Heinrich Bull Foundation. The Heinrich Bull Foundation has been actively promoting the consolidation of democracy and human rights, advancing gender equality, and taking action to prevent the destruction of the environment in Southern Africa since 1989. The Foundation's work in Southern Africa consists of four programs. Democracy and social justice, human rights and gender justice, sustainable development, and international politics and dialogue. Thanks as always to our amazing producer, Andri Benet. Until next time, I'm Fasti Kalitz, listening with you to the Open Book Podcast Series.